you at the park, part of the Roner, Roner Park. Or no, that's no. I'm sorry, I'm screwing this up. That's later. No, June 25th is here. That's right, barbecue here, June 25th. Later on in the summer, we're doing something else. But June 25th, after service, so bring stuff for potlucky kind of stuff. And then I know that um, on the 4th of July, um, there is there's another one too out at Floyd's house. There's going to be a barbecue out there. So that'll be on the 4th of July. As far as news on um, the memorial for Kathy, we're still waiting to hear when that date will be settled. And obviously we'll let everyone know when that is settled. Okay, scripture reading for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. No, no. I'm green. Okay, all right. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that the Lord is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's God's word. Amen. Children, you're dismissed.
is not mine. I almost drank yours, Ron. <laughs> I'm switching it up here. I don't want that. Alrighty, so 1 Corinthians 9. You know, I was thinking this calendar year or this time of year in the calendar. I know I mentioned it last week. We had Memorial Day, obviously just symbolizing sacrifice um, for liberty. Um, we got Juneteenth coming up with more of an emphasis on livery, or excuse me, liberty and freedom. July 4th coming up, more and more freedom. A lot of things on the calendar just, just celebrating the beauty and the wonder of freedom and liberty and specifically in our country. And one thing in our country that we're probably all familiar with is the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights. And it's not something that I look at often, but I just wanted to read just a couple of those things of what we as citizens, various rights that we have, right, that we can exercise in our country. So one of those, of course, amendments to the Constitution. First one, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Number two, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Number three, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Go down, Amendment 8, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Anyway, some of the rights we have as citizens done via our Bill of Rights, which of course was added to amendments as time went on. So as countrymen in America, we have many rights that we can exercise. Again, that's, that's one of the great freedoms of being in America, just treasured, treasured things. So I was looking at this passage and going that Paul himself, in a sense, in this passage is kind of arguing why he has certain rights kind of call it Paul's Bill of Rights, so to speak, um, and specifically in this area of his ministry. But he argues in a different way. He, he says he lays out this list of rights that he has, that he should have, that he could exercise, that he could keep. But then what does Paul do with his Bill of Rights? He actually relinquishes them for something greater and one scholar said, knowledge can be taught, but love needs to be shown. I thought that was an interesting way to say it. We can know things. Remember his argument in chapter 8 was about these strong people in the community that were kind of talking about all of their knowledge and all of their um, freedom and, and how their knowledge brings them freedom. But Paul goes even further. He goes into love, something even higher and showing how that can be shown and that that is what is actually supreme. That freedom, liberty, isn't supreme. Love is. And that is some of the arguments that Paul is making. So this particular kind of defense of his laying down of rights 
is not so much a defense of his apostleship. If you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, he kind of goes in and defends all the reasons of why he's an apostle. But here, he is really focused on this issue of rights, and that's because we always got to keep the context in mind. Right? We just got done with chapter 8. What was that all about? That was about idol food, temple, idolatry. Remember, strong and weak. And so he smack dab in that discussion, then says, oh, hey, here's how I am laying down my rights. Here are all the rights that I should have, but here's what I am going to do with them. So this is kind of like a sidebar as kind of an example proving of what he was just talking about, which is why last week I talked a ton about chapter 10. Again, this is a letter. We're not proof texters. We've got to keep everything in mind because 10 goes right back into the issue of idolatry in the temple. So he's really focused on this issue of, of rights. And one thing that's interesting, and before we kind of dive into this text, we see that Paul, in this context, what does he do with his rights? He lays them down. But Paul didn't always do that. Paul didn't always lay his rights down. So this isn't necessarily just saying, every right that you've ever had, you should just lay it down and just let it go, just relinquish it. Um, Paul, in Acts 22, did something else. And I just wanted to kind of point this out. Acts 22, 22 to 29. It's kind of a different attitude about it. He is talking here in, I believe he's in Jerusalem. So we kind of he's going off on his experience with with Jesus and seeing the Lord and that his mission then was going to go to the Gentiles and then in verse 22 up to this word they listened to him then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He probably didn't say it exactly like that because he's literally being laid out about ready to be whipped. But when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to them, what are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So in this spot, Paul says what some of his rights are. Hey, you're about ready to flog me. I'm a Roman citizen. Not a good idea. And they're actually fear for it because of the rights that he would have he would have had. But I was thinking, huh, that's interesting. Why does Paul, so it's like sometimes there are situations where he's going to say, I'm going to exercise my rights. I'm going to speak them. I'm going I'm to say in this particular culture, this particular time, I'm going to use them. But then there's other times when he's going to say, I am relinquishing all of these rights that I have. And I think that what we find is that how does Paul do that? And how do we do that in our lives? What should, what should our reason for why we kind of exercise and take something up for ourselves or reason to lay it down? Well, what is it? It's the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. 
So Paul, for whatever reason at that time, was like, hey, the gospel's got to go in a different spot. Remember, he was trying to get to Rome and go all over the place. And so he kind of utilizes some of his rights to do so. And so the good news of Jesus ends up being his kind of guiding motivation. And so that's something that, that we too, when we kind of ask these questions, even in our society or in our relationships or in our churches or at schools or at work, when is it a time to kind of say, nope, this is my right. I'm going to speak it. I'm going to hold to it. I'm going to exercise it. And when is it time to say, nope, you know what? For actually the sake of love, for the sake of the good news of the gospel, I'm actually going to relinquish that and lay that aside. What is our attitudes? Again, he's always cutting right at the root, trying to go after our hearts. And it's not always going to be just that it's very, it's very clear and for one person it's always this or always that. But we get to really see Paul's attitude and just want to continue to ask ourselves, is it ours? Is this your attitude as Christian? What's your highest priority? Is it rights and liberty and freedom and exercising that? Or is it the sacrificial love and beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ and emulating that attitude so that others might come to know Jesus? Just a really good question to ask. So, 1 Corinthians 9, the first few verses. I think we're going to use some R's today. So I'm going that Paul outlines his rights. He kind of he gives his bill of rights, so to speak, by his rank in these first few verses. There's four here in the beginning. One of them, am I not free? Am I not free? There's a bunch of question marks throughout this passage, right? He's using those questions as rhetorical questions to argue to make a point. He is. He is free. Paul is truly free. He can do what he wants, but his freedom does not come from self-sufficiency like the philosophers of his day and Stoicism and kind of just being self-sufficient in yourself. But he actually sees ultimate freedom not always in the exercising of his rights and his securities and his provision and happiness, so to speak, but that he's even freer to be able to relinquish them sometimes. He views freedom in a much bigger way. And isn't that interesting that strength can be found not in the enforcing or demanding of freedom and of rights, but in giving up them, in sacrificial freedom for others, that others might be free. So we say, hey, am I not free? Yes, actually I am. I am completely free. I have the freedom of the gospel. I'm free from all of these kind of constraints, even constraints that I may be able to take, but I don't. The other one, an apostle, is rank as an apostle. What does that word mean? Sent one. An apostle is somebody who has been sent. It was actually at times a seafaring term in wider culture. And so he sees himself as somebody who is sent. That's his identity. He sees himself in his message that it's not his own authority. It's not he's just kind of preaching what he feels like he should preach. But actually, his whole identity is, what am I? I'm somebody who's sent by somebody else. So somebody else has the authority, and my authority comes from that other person. Namely, God's. His authority is always derivative. He's always focused on on his identity as somebody who has been sent by God for a divine mission. 
And so when we look at that word apostle, we see that he is a sent one. Even Jesus in Hebrews was talked about as an apostle. So Paul's kind of like an apostle of the main apostle. You know, we think about the apostles as kind of the big dudes in the church and a lot of them wrote the Bible and actually some didn't. So that wasn't just the only thing about apostleship. But he views his, his, the fact that he is sent because Jesus is the ultimate one who was sent. Jesus is the ultimate apostle. Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners. And so he is saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I kind of have an authority. Yes, it's a derivative authority from Christ, but I am an apostle. That is some of who I am. That's part of my rank. He's also saying, guess what? I've seen Jesus. Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Remember, Paul says he saw Jesus. He saw the resurrected Christ. Um, he, he tells often of his story throughout Acts of when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. Remember, he was going to persecute Christians. Um, and yet, the living, resurrected Christ confronts him. And so he says, not only am I just an apostle, I have also one of the apostles who has seen the living, resurrected Christ. Well, it's another part of his rank, so to speak, that gives him his rights. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Remember, Paul planted this church. You're here. We're having these conversations. You're in this community. You're getting letters from me as Christians. Why? Because the gospel came from you're my workmanship. If to others I'm not an apostle, like, hey, if there's other people outside of Corinth and outside of this Christian community that, that don't think I'm an apostle, at least I am to you because I'm the one who planted the church. You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You're the seal. You're the authenticator. The, you are the authentic proof. You're Christians, which shows that I am your apostle. And so he's just kind of outlining his that, hey, he, he would have rights by his own rank, so to speak. And so those are some of the reasons for his rights. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Some say, well, it could be that this is my defense as in what I just said. And we've talked about this before. How Paul sometimes talks like, well, are you talking about what you just said or what's going to come before? And again, it's probably both because he did just, in a sense, provide a defense by those rhetorical questions. And then he's going to go on in all these verses to continue to show his defense of what he's doing and, and, and why he should have rights. Remember, Paul is arguing for why he has the right, but then goes further to show why he lays them down, why he relinquishes those. Verse 4, so he goes further. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? So, here's a right that he has. He has a right to any food. He's just been talking about food. And food in idol temples and, and further. He's like, hey, I have, a, I have a right to eat. I have a right to, to drink. I am free. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? And what's interesting about this paragraph is verses 4, verses 8, um, excuse me, verses 4, Five and six and seven come from verse eight. In verse eight, he says, "Do I say these things on human authority?" And what he's doing there is one translation says, "Common sense." So this paragraph before verse eight is kind of saying, "Here is my rational argument from common sense, from stuff that goes on in culture that everybody just kind of knows." I'm going to argue from rationality, from logic, and just what happens in the world. Then he even takes his arguments further. But right now, he's, he's outlining these rights in verses 3, 
through 7 as kind of rights by reason, by common sense, human authority. A right to eat and drink, a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Hey, I'm an apostle, right? I'm right, I'm an apostle, I have authority, I'm a, I'm a sent one. The other guys, the other apostles in that group, what do they get? They got wife. They take their wife along with them. They get to enjoy marriage. He talked about why he was single. Remember, what's his reason for being single in seven? Because he's trying to even be devoted more and more to Jesus and not be caught up in some of the other anxieties that come with marriage. But he has chosen that. So, he has that right. The brothers of the Lord. That's interesting. Jesus. Jesus' brothers, apparently. Running around with wives and probably talking about Jesus. Even James one of Jesus' brothers. And Cephas, you know, often thought of as kind of the leading apostle. So, hey, we have, we have this right. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Like, is it just us? Just Barnabas and me? They, oh, well, we don't, we, don't, we don't get to have that right. No, no, it's not. He, he also could take that right. And, and, and then so now he moves from from kind of freedom of food, freedom of being married, and now freedom of, of not having to work for a living, but getting money from his ministry. He's saying, yeah, he could also have that freedom. He shouldn't necessarily have to um, go out and work a different job. So this thing about Paul's job. What did Paul do? Remember, a lot of us know that. He was a tent maker. That's interesting because kind of, I just kind of run over that and it's hard for us to understand because it's not like tent makers are running around our town all the time and we go to our tent maker to deal with our tent before we go camping. But here's some things about, about tents. So Paul worked in his tent maker's trade. Pliny the Elder notes that tent makers made sailcloth awnings for temporary shelters, stalls, and shops in the Forum area before permanent buildings were erected to provide shade. So maybe he's out doing that in Corinth, making... Shade stuff for people. goes on, In a seaport, Paul also could have worked at making and repairing sails. That would make sense. A lot of shipping. It's kind of a key area. Murphy O'Connor suggested as a leather worker, Paul also may have made thongs, gourds, harnesses, saddles, and shields. Stansbury notes, Although Paul's background made him socially on par with those in the leisured classes, meaning, remember, he was religious. He was a Pharisee. He was kind of upscale. He knew all these kind of arguing devices. He, he kind of had an elite status. Although Paul's background made him socially on par with those in the leisured classes, his sense of mission and method of support made him identify with those of relatively low social status. He's a tent maker. Just a manual laborer dude making shade for people in Corinth. Kind of a thing. So what did people think of this kind of job? And I think all this is important in the, in the, in the context. What would, they, what would those, what would the strong ones in Corinth, the ones with all the knowledge, the ones that are self-sufficient and strong and rich or wealthy, what would they have thought of tent making? There's another scholar. They may have considered the rigors of handwork that enabled him to preach the gospel without charge to be demeaning. Craftsmen were held in low regard by the leisured class in the ancient world. Cicero, Remember that Roman first century person remarks, 
Unbecoming to a gentleman too, and vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired workmen whom we pay for mere manual labor, not for artistic skill. For in their case, the very wage they receive is a pledge of their slavery. And all mechanics, craftsmen too, are engaged in vulgar trades, for no workshop can have anything liberal and genteel about it. End quote. Cicero regards working with one's hands to be a dirty business that coarsens body, soul, and manners. He calls craftsmen the dogs of the city. Civilized existence, he thought, required leisure. Again, freedom, leisure, security. Naturally, only those belonging to the proprietary upper class, having tenants and plenty of slaves to do all the work, could afford to live out this view. Anyway, kind of goes on. He says, The Corinthians, however, were laborers and tradespeople themselves and were probably proud of their professions, which is interesting. But there are people there that probably would have kind of been looking down their nose at Paul for what he had done. Could have been like, well, wait a second, Paul, why are you doing all this tent stuff? We could be paying you. The strong one. So he has a different attitude. Verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So again, appealing to common sense, to rationality, to normal cultural norms. Whose soldier is out there without the supplies for being a soldier, without rations and things like that. The supplies of being a soldier. Of course, you're a soldier, you're working in the army. The army is going to feed you, it's going to help you, it's going to supply you. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? If you're a vineyard, if you're a vine dresser, if you're a gardener, you're looking forward to the harvest and things like that. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So again, just appealing to all these different spheres of life and going, this is the way it is. I got a right here. I could use this. Do I say these things on human authority? Verse 8. All that, all that comes before this argument. The common sense stuff that, that you see in the world. So he lays out his rights by reason and common sense. But then he goes further in this next paragraph. Paul outlines his rights, his bill of rights, by religious authority, by scriptural authority. Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, so he's transitioning. Now, it's not, now we're not talking about just normal life stuff that all of us already know. Now we're moving to what God has said, to the divine law, divine authority. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy again. Can't tell you enough. When you look at 1 Corinthians, when you read the New Testament, the Old Testament is everywhere. I've said it many times. And we're not just New Testament Christians. We're Christians of the whole book. He views what is said in the Old Testament as an application for that moment in his life and in his letter right then. And this is what he finds. You must have known that pretty well. How many of you pull out that verse as a reason for why you do whatever it is you do? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's not interesting of how he argues. Not just from cultural reasons of rights of the day, but something that transcends culture. God-given rights by God-breathed authority. The Old Testament. So how do you make application in your life for things? Do you just go to the new? Or do you also go to the old? Because that is God's Word to you as well. What's interesting about that, it comes from Deuteronomy 25.4. And Deuteronomy 24 and Deuteronomy 25 are kind of surrounded by issues of justice and justice for people, meeting out proper justice with their humanity 
in mind. A compassionate justice. Which again, the critiquers of the Bible or of the Old Testament kind of act as if, you know, the law is just kind of this, this thing that's just kind of about hurting people or, or, or it's not really for our benefit. But there's so much in the law about a compassionate sense of justice for a person's humanity. And Deuteronomy 24 and 25 are surrounded by that. So if you go way back there, if you go back into 24, you find a bunch of laws. Verse 17, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do that. In other words, look after the sojourner or the fatherless. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Like when you're gathering grapes and all of a sudden, hey, remember you're a slave in Egypt? Guess what? You're to take care of the poor. In the verse, and then in chapter 25, if, if there's a dispute and if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. Justice. But listen to this as it goes on. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more, not less. If anyone should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So we're not just, so justice in the sense of like degrade the person an appropriate level of justice. So there's a sense of compassion. And then we get this verse. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Now he turns into animals. And there's all this... It, it, it's amazing what scholars can write on. You, I mean, they can just debate, oh, well, why is this here? And how did this get here? And all that kind of stuff. But what's the saying? You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. What's the ox doing? The ox is working. The ox is working. You can't muzzle him while he's working so that he can't eat. So even in a sense, some look at this as kind of like compassion for the animal. Even in, Gen- even in Deuteronomy. There's a verse in Proverbs about taking care of your beast and caring for your beast. So the sense of, hey, it, when a muzzle's working, excuse me, when an ox is working, you can't muzzle it. It needs to eat. Feed it. They should kind of get what they should get. And there's a bunch of other discussions on, on that issue. But I think that's just enough to show that, hey, he goes to the Old Testament and he is saying, hey, we even see this from things like animals. That hey, they can get their reward for their work. Verse, oh, excuse me, um, into verse eight, 9. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? So again, He's, he's applying... That thing way back in Deuteronomy about oxen, that's for us. That's for us. That's for us apostles. That's for, that's for us who are ministering the Gospel. That's how close he takes the reading of the Old Testament into his own life. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So, you labor for payment. You have a hope of a harvest. One writer said, Work conditions are not to crush the human spirit, but to lift and to encourage it with thoughts of the benefits of the goal of labor. Hence, plowing should take place in hope. When you work, you're hoping for the rewards you get. You're not just working for free. <laughs> You're going to get your paycheck at the end of the week. Or there's a sense of there's a sense of hope attached 
to it. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Again, if others are there are, are using this right, don't we have it even more? We're the ones who planted the church. We're the ones who have been here. We're the ones who are helping you, teaching you, writing to you. And then I love that connection between the spiritual and the material. That spirit, people that teach spiritual things should be supplied materially. But there is a connection there. There's not a disconnection. And there's this attitude even that he kind of deserves it more than others. If others share the right, do not we even more? And so again, he's appealing to say, yep, we deserve it. And we even deserve it more than the others deserve it for all these reasons that I'm giving. So again, he's just arguing and showing his rights of what he should be able to do. But then where's his heart? Here it comes. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the Gospel of Christ. So, in these verses, Paul relinquishes his bill of rights. Why? Not to hinder the Gospel. So, we outlined his rights by rank. He outlined his rights by reason, common sense. He outlined his rights by his religious authority, scriptural authority. And now he's saying, I'm relinquishing them. I'm relinquishing these rights. Why? So that the gospel is not hindered. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So again, he's, it's like he, he said his whole reason, his whole heart here, and then he kind of goes back into the similar arguments. There's another religious reason, so to speak. Back to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 18.1. And it's also covered in Leviticus about Levites and their food and how Levites get to eat the food of the temple. They get to be supplied by the temple. They're doing the spiritual stuff. They get to eat the physical food there in the temple. There's also probably the sense of, remember their pagan temple context, all that we talked about last week, of eating food in, in these religious pagan gatherings. And they would kind of put some of the offering up to sacrifice to whoever and then they'd be having their party over in the corner or whatever and eating, and eating all the meat. And so that's probably going on too. The ones even in the pagan temple are getting food. In the same way, the Lord, another reason, he kind of goes for the, this is the big one, the big argument, the Lord, Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the Gospel should get their living by the Gospel. So Jesus said so. Think of the argument. You go through all these and you go like nowadays everybody wants to say, well, where does that say that in the Bible? And then you know you always go to Jesus kind of thing. And that's good. We should go to Jesus. But the whole Bible is inspired by, by God. And so he's kind of, kind of ticking it off with, okay, Jesus even commanded this. If you proclaim the Gospel, and where did He do that? In Luke 10. He also did it in Matthew. In Luke 10, the whole context is, remember, sending the, sending the people out to reap a harvest and how are you going to go out, disciples and all that? Well, in Luke 10, this is what Jesus said about that issue. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. So as you're going, 
Talks about the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Go your way. I'm going to send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You know, don't carry a lot of stuff. Go into the house. They're feeding you great. <laughs> you're, you're a laborer. You're a spiritual laborer. You should be eating the food and, and enjoying what has been given to you. So, Jesus said so. But, He's still going to lay it aside. He's not going to make use of the right because he would rather endure anything than put any kind of obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So verses 15 through 18. Why Paul relinquishes his rights. He, he relinquishes his rights to rave about the gospel. That's what Paul's doing. His highest goal is in his own rights, his own liberty. But it is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is his utter passion. It is how he dictates his entire life on the good news of what Jesus does. That's his mission. That's his identity. That's his everything. That's how he makes decisions. I was thinking, notice how in these coming verses here, there's not resentment. There's another R. Sometimes when we lay aside our rights or our rights get infringed upon, we can get pretty resentful fast. Right? If you take something away from me, I'm not generally pleased about it. But there's no resentment. His passion, his passion doesn't go to like anger. Oh, no, I've got to do this. can't believe I've got to do with, deal with you people and all your strong, weak issues and all that kind of stuff. Zero resentment. Just this passionate love and desire for King Jesus. That's what Paul is about. So, how do you handle laying down your rights? Where do you go emotionally? Paul is not an entitled Christian. And we should not be either. The Gospel motivates him over rights. Gospel, math problem, Gospel, greater than rights, liberty. That's what he is about. But I have made no use, again he says the same thing in verse 12 that he's now saying in verse 15, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So I didn't just make all this big argument of why I should be also be provided for and not have to go work doing tent making and in among the lower classes. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel! Exclamation point. And one writer kind of talks about this section, which is helpful because we don't always see it in our translations. Here's what he says. In verses 15 to 18, Paul becomes increasingly passionate about his decision not to accept the right of financial maintenance. The earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts reproduce Paul's passionate breaking off of a construction and recommencing his words differently. In grammar and syntax, this is known as aposiopiesis, something like that. What does that word mean? The device of suddenly breaking off speech. You get so passionate in your writing as he's talking to whoever is writing this for him, he's just so into it that he just kind of breaks off his speech in this section. I would rather die than hyphen. Well, no one should invalidate my ground for glorying. It's like he's just kind of going, I'd rather die than the gospel and he's kind of moving to the next thing. He's just utterly passionate. He says, we may imagine Paul dictating the letter, reaching a peak of white-hot fervor with, I would rather die than, that long hyphen, and realizing mid-flow that he must keep to the subject. 
Most English versions smooth the syntax away into something blander and less passionate. So one commentator said is happening here. When he kind of goes off on that explanation point, and then he's got to get back to the issue. He's getting so excited about the gospel. Okay, now we've got to kind of get back to the issue here. So, I think we need to remember, what is the gospel? What is this good news that he is so excited about? What is it? Well, it's Jesus. Remember, it's, it's not just that it's a message, but it's that it's a person. It's that it is Jesus. The good news of the gospel, that Christ came, that Christ died, that He was buried, that He rose again from the dead to rescue sinners, that He is alive. His goal is to exalt Jesus Christ. I thought this was really good from Spurgeon on this text. Of course, Spurgeon speaks kind of that older language, but he always does a great job. I was really, really encouraged by this, and I hope you are too. This is what he says. Again, am I asked what it is to preach the gospel? I answer, to preach the gospel is to exalt Jesus Christ. Perhaps this is the best answer that I could give. I'm very sorry to see very often how little the gospel is understood even by some of the best Christians. Some time ago, there was a young woman under great distress of soul. She came to a very pious Christian man who said, My dear girl, you must go home and pray. Well, I thought within myself, that is not the Bible way at all. It never says, go home and pray. The poor girl went home, she did pray, and she still continued in distress. Said he, you must wait. You must read the Scriptures and study them. That's not the Bible way. That's not exalting Christ. Find a great many preachers are preaching this kind of doctrine. They tell a poor, convinced sinner, you must go home and pray and read the Scriptures. You must attend the ministry. And so on. Works, works, works. Instead of, by grace are ye saved through faith. If a penitent should come and ask me, what must I do to be saved? I would say, Christ must save you. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would neither direct to prayer, nor reading of the Scriptures, nor attending God's house, but simply direct to faith, naked faith on God's Gospel. Not that I despise prayer. That must come after faith. Not that I speak a word against the searching of the Scriptures. That's an infallible mark of God's children. Not that I find fault with attendance on God's Word. God forbid. I love to see people there. But none of those things are the way of salvation. It's nowhere written, He that attendeth chapel shall be saved, or he that readeth the Bible shall be saved. Nor do I read, he that prayeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth, he that has a naked faith on the man Christ Jesus, on his Godhead, on his manhood, is delivered from sin. To preach that faith alone saves is to preach God's truth. Nor will I for one moment concede to any man the name of a gospel minister if he preaches anything as the plan of salvation except faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, faith, nothing but faith in His name. But we are, most of us, very much muddled in our ideas. we got so much work stored into our brains, such an idea of merit and of doing wrought into our hearts that it's almost impossible for us to preach justification by faith clearly and fully. And when we do, our people won't receive it. We tell them, believe on the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But they have a notion that faith is something so wonderful, so mysterious, it is quite impossible that without doing something else they can ever get it. Now that faith which unites to the Lamb is an instantaneous gift of God, and he who believes on the Lord Jesus is that moment saved without anything else whatsoever. So what's the gospel? It's Christ. Christ is the gospel. Believe the gospel. Trust him. 
That's what he is basing his entire life on. And so he can give up his, his liberties, his, his elite status of spirituality and knowing all the Bible and just pointing people to Jesus over and over again. And so he is just gripped, raving about this, which is why he can be the kind of person that could lay aside rights sometimes. He sees that sacrificial love is the whole point. That freedom and that rights are not the very, very highest thing. But it is the good news of Jesus. Not good advice, not a right to a better life, but it's a, but it's a free offer, a free offer with no attachments. It's Jesus, only Jesus. That is what utterly grips Him in His ministry. And that's what He is pointing them to. Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel. Verse 17, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Again, he's focused on his apostleship. He's gotten this from somebody else. He's a steward of something divine, of a message from God, of the good news of Jesus. What then is my reward? I said, well, well, you're not getting your reward right then. That in my preaching I may present the Gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the Gospel. Again, similar language. He's just trying to present the good news and the freeness of Jesus Christ all the way, not just in what He says, but in the way that He lives. We've seen that all through, all through this, this entire letter. This kind of moving against the, the wisdom of the world. The wise, the free, the liberty, all that kind of, kind of stuff. And just showing the weakness, in a sense, of the Gospel, of how the crucified Messiah came into the world to save sinners. That's how he's gearing all of these issues around. And I was just struck in, in, in thinking through that in the Acts 22 area, what I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon, of when he exercises his rights. So well, why did he? Well, it's because about the gospel. He wanted the right then. Surprised he wanted to get beaten in and be laid out forever to not to not be able to share the good news with people. So in that situation, it's probably like, yep, the best news for the gospel. I'm gonna I'm gonna exercise my right right now. In this situation, with these strong people in their midst and these super spiritual ones, he's like, forget that. I'm laying aside my rights. I'm laying aside my rights and and showing them the power and freedom of the good news of Jesus. So, what do we do? We receive what Jesus has done in His body and in His blood. That Jesus laid aside His rights. He laid them aside. He went crucified to bear the curse that he did not deserve. Remember what the gospel, the gospel does not give us what we deserve. If we got what we deserve, we're in big trouble. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus went to that place for us, the one who did not deserve it. And so Jesus shed his blood, he broke his body to draw us to him. And so that we could be people that experience the wonderful, free, radical, scandalous love of God and so that we could live a life in that way to show that to others. So that's what we're going to remember as we take communion.
So as we uh, get ready to take communion, we're going to sing a song that's very, very, very simple. And it hardly has any other words in it other than, I love you, Lord. And I hope you know it. And I hope that if you don't, that you get the true value of the simple message that it's sending, uh, sending to us. It's going to be a cappella. We have no music with it. So everything that you sing is going to be right here. And think about what it is you're going to do. You're going to remember the blood and the body of Christ. Okay, I'll give you the start. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you First Corinthians eleven twenty three. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Sing to God be the glory. Great things.